Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, This is my last full day here um, on the banks of the beautiful Piscataqua River. Um, And... uh, I'm recording this on Monday afternoon. I'm recording on a Monday rather than our usual Tuesday because I am going to be on the road first thing tomorrow morning. And in a height, uh, in the height of completely atypical generosity and collegiality, none other than the great Sarah Isger has agreed at short notice to come on this podcast. She thought it was her second time on here. Um, but in fact, it is her third. And I told her the reason I remembered it was her third is because the second time she was on, I made fun of her for how awkward and, 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 um, uh, reticent she was on the first podcast, the first remnant she did, because now longtime listeners know both from her niche podcast with David French, but also the dispatch podcast. Normal Sarah is not exactly hard to get to elicit opinions from um or have forceful points of view uh fully aired and uh so it's funny to go back and I mean, i'm not gonna go back and listen to it but it's funny to go back and think about how uh she couldn't quite figure out what the remnant was what i was about she was it was it was sort of like a deposition where she answered as carefully as possible <laughs> um and all right with that with all that aside um sarah you're welcome back to the remnant it's been far too long Thanks for having me. So, um, I don't need to do any like bio stuff with you, right? People, people listen to this podcast know who you are. This is, if they don't by this point, exactly. uh, unfortunately, like this is their first remnant. They don't know anything about the dispatch. Like that's a real bummer. And they'll either, I'll sink or swim on my own merits. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is, uh, is that law stuff. Um, right, and we don't right. have to we don't have to linger very long on it. Um, I am not putting issuing a fatwa that you can have a limit on the number of times you can say USC this or that or whatever. But um, so the the FBI raided, searched, probed. You come up with the verb that you prefer. Um, uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, you know Florida Elba, and um, um, 
and there's a lot of mm, crazy talk going around about all of it. Um, so I guess my, my first question is, how did we end up in this ass-backwards position where basically, with the exception of what, the Atomic Secrets Act, um, the president gets to decide what is or is not classified without very much of a buy your leave from the people who actually write laws. I mean, how can you go to jail for something that's because of an executive order? Presidents can send you to jail with an executive order? All the time. So actually, lots of people can classify and declassify stuff. Hillary Clinton had classification and declassification authority. Um, what makes this a little unique is that the president is the head of the executive branch. And so there's on top of statutory aspects, like you mentioned, the Atomic Energy Act. There's also the theory of the unitary executive, which is basically that the president is the entire branch of government. He can hire inferior officers, but at the end of the day, all things, all power of the executive is vested in the president. And so if the executive can classify or declassify something, that's all within the president's power. And you get into some weird stuff about, well, can the president just say, did I declassify that? Or does he have to go through some sort of process? What if Congress says he has to go through some sort of process? And by the way, speaking of the Atomic Energy Act, what right does Congress have to dictate anything to the executive about what he can declassify? Uh, you know, courts have long dealt with the line between the foreign policy power vested in the executive and whatever vestiges of foreign policy power are in the legislative branch. So if Congress in the Atomic Energy Act was intruding on core executive power to conduct foreign policy for the United States, then they can't even limit that power. And that would all be a really interesting academic conversation that we could have in some law school cafeteria over two buck chuck. Um, but in reality, it's not that complicated. Nobody has actually made the argument uh, that the Atomic Energy Act, for instance, is unconstitutional. In addition, we actually haven't seen any evidence that the president did, in fact, declassify those documents. Um, saying that he could have is, again, super fun. But did he? John Bolton, his national security advisor, says he never heard about it. Nobody else in that national security apparatus is saying they ever heard that. And it also doesn't make sense because... Every time he took something to Mar-a-Lago, by definition, it was declassified by this like hanging chad of a declassification order, regardless of how secret it was, regardless of how important it might be to our national security. That's it, that should be an impeachable offense. <laughs> right. So th 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 I, mean, I, I want to get back to the laws off in a second, but this is one of my great peeves about the defenses of Trump is that depending on which ones we're talking about, but a lot of them, if they were true. That They're really be, bad. They're worse. Damning, right? It's like, <laughs> like, oh, so like, like the identity of our asset inside the Chinese Communist Party is now declassified because he wants to bring documents to his bedroom. Really? Yeah. That's right. that's that's the standard. Well, you know, like we really should keep this secret. But I want to read it in bed. I mean, like that's 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 bonkers. And so many of these things, you know, you hear people saying from you know. Various background people are, are whispering, well, you know, Trump just really wanted to have this stuff. And um, and it was so haphazard when he left the White House that they just threw stuff in boxes. 
And so there's really nothing nefarious to it. And I was like, okay, that's probably true to some extent, maybe possible, but that's what a crappy defense that like he took the classified materials so tr- with, with such lack of care that it was like, oh, there was this p- great piece in Gateway Pundit about me. Let's put it next to the thing about what the warhead, how the warhead works. I mean, it's just nuts. It's similar to me to the argument that I heard from the left during the Hillary Clinton investigation that the Secret Service guards Chappaqua and therefore, what do you care that she was conducting her emails on a private server when the Secret Service is there guarding the server? And it's like, what does that have to do with anything unless the Secret Server, I mean, the Secret Service is like, I don't know, some sort of honey, I shrunk the kids sitting in the tubes interconnected in the web. Preventing- or they're like in Tron, where they put themselves. <laughs> yes, yes, Tron. Yes. Yeah, yeah project themselves into the the, right? the the ones and zeros stream. Um, I mean, there's Secret Service at Mar-a-Lago. Also, the job of the Secret Service is to protect the physical safety of their protectee. They are not there to protect your documents. They presumably don't know the documents are there to begin with to protect. So when it comes to the server, they certainly don't prevent someone from hacking it. When it comes to Mar-a-Lago, they don't prevent people from coming and going into that room, set of rooms throughout. I'm sort of picturing this like basement, like my storage space where like, yeah, there's a box over there and that box got moved into that closet. Um, They... They are protecting it in terms of people coming in who could harm the president, making sure those people aren't armed, that they pass a, a rudimentary background check, for instance. But then they don't check the hallways. Right. And if the president goes one way and some guest goes another way with an iPhone and takes pictures of things. They go with the president. Yeah. <laughs> but no, like, I'm glad you reminded me of this Hillary Clinton. Because I think Hillary Clinton herself said it. You know, well, the Secret Service was, was protecting the server. It always reminded me of that scene from... Um, Zoolander, where you mean the files are in the computer? In the computer. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, but so back to this law stuff. Um, so from my reading of all of this, you know, going back to the, the FDR's executive order, Framfra, Queen Estray, Bravo, whatever. Um, basically, all of executive privilege um, certainly and the, in general, and the executive privilege with regard to classification is really something that's, and I, I'm not saying this to say that therefore it's illegitimate, but it's basically made up by courts, right? There's nothing, you know, in the constitution, there's no plain text of the constitution that says the president has the power to classify. There's nothing in the plain text of the constitution that says he has executive privilege. So executive privilege is court made. That, right. And, and we should separate out like the um, the legal term executive privilege from the privileges of the executive. Okay. <laughs> like executive privilege, the way we use it colloquially, uh, refers to the president being able to get advice and work product from subordinates without uh, being intruded on by other legal process, whether from Congress or private entities Um, who would otherwise be able to get those documents or get those people to be able to testify about the advice they gave the president, or more importantly, in this case, what the president said to them about that advice or in that conversation. Basically, the idea is you protect candid conversations because we want people to have candid conversations around the president. Jonah, this kind of goes to your whole 
thesis against transparency, which I was skeptical of at the beginning, but I have to tell you, you won me over within like three (laughs) minutes of making that argument where I was like, oh my God, my whole world has changed. Because actually there's a lot of things that we already build into our system that are against transparency. We just don't phrase it that way. But executive privilege is absolutely this legal construct so that there's not total transparency in every single conversation the second you have it in every document um, so that people can actually bat around good and bad ideas the way that we you know, do in our regular lives. Now, there are also, and I think you're talking about this more in the classification context, sort of um, rights and privileges that come with being president that we don't lay out in the constitution, one of which may be being able to say this document is secret and no one can see it. Or saying, you know, you said this document was secret, person who works for me, but you work for me. Therefore, I can say it's not secret. And yeah, that all stems from this idea of the unitary executive, that he is the executive branch. And so all of those constitutional um, rights, privileges, duties are all actually in one person. He can delegate them to the national security advisor, to the secretary of defense, to the head of the CIA. But at the end of the day, if they report to him, he can fire them, um, regardless of what Congress says about that, as we've gone through many a time. He can also then countermand what they said. Right. But I guess my point is, is that, as you know, I'm a big Congress is the first branch of government guy. This, when I was reading up on this stuff, it feels very much in the larger tradition of Congress saying, we don't want to deal with it, you deal with it. And, you know, which they've been doing on trade, they've been doing on all sorts of administrative, you know, the administrative state or, you know, whatever we want to call it um, for over 100 years now, because it just seems to me like a normal person, if you said, you know, it's against the law for you to reveal that document to the public. They would kind of think that there was a law that like Congress wrote a law, like, like there was a legislature, there was a piece of, well, there is a law about, of course, disclosing classified information, mishandling, like all of those are laws, but in terms of making it classified in the first place, that's what you mean. Yeah. And like that would, it would be kind of hard to legislate because right. Each branch can literally create something secret. I mean, I think there's maybe this mystique that shouldn't be there. Like if I write down on a piece of paper a secret that I know when I worked at the Department of Justice, like I now need to make that classified, right? And so we don't want that to go to the president every time so that he has to then decide whether this thing that Sarah created is classified. And so that's why all of these people down the scale have classification authority and sometimes limited declassification authority. It's also why a lot of extra stuff gets classified because I may think something's really, really secret and important because I worked on it. (laughs) And so I classify it. Um, And so then you have this piece of paper that I have now stamped with my little classification thing. There's actually a whole lot of stuff you have to go through, but whatever, now it's classified and it just exists in this classified realm. Now all those statutory penalties and crimes apply to that piece of paper. But the piece of paper was like me writing down a thing that I thought in my head. So Congress wrote the penalties. Yeah. But the executive branch just gets to make up what's classified on it on its yeah. own. So when you and and in theory, so could Congress, right? Well, in theory, Congress could do all sorts of things like its job. 
um, <laughs> if, it, if it wanted to, uh, but it doesn't seem to want to. We're just putting on, you know, don't take off the legal hat, but put on the pundit hat on top. They go well mm. together. Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. Um, um, Peanut butter can, and jelly. It can sort of be like that Sherlock Holmes hat where the bills goes both ways, right? You put on both yeah. hats. Um, how do you think this thing plays out? Okay, so I do think we know a lot more than we knew when the news first broke. So let's walk through some of what I think we've learned. Some of which, like, we have dead to rights, and some of which I think is a fair assumption based on putting a bunch of pieces together. Um, So obviously we know there were, in fact, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. We don't know what they were. Uh, We know their classification level. Some were very, very classified. Some not so much. Some of course, can violate the law even if they're not technically, like, there's nothing written on it that says top secret um, just because they are a known secret of the government. That's why the classification thing actually is kind of not all that relevant in some respects. But okay, so you have, uh, we know that. There was also a question that I had of like, why did they do a search warrant for this? There's actually a court way to do this. You subpoena. If they say, shove your subpoena up, Then you go to court and say they're ignoring our subpoena. The court says you will now comply with the subpoena. If they tell the court to shove it, you end up in jail for contempt. I mean, that's like kind of extreme, but that's where it ends up, sort of the inherent authority of the court. But here's what I think we know now, which is they did subpoena uh, Trump and Trump's organization for these documents. And it's not that the Trump organization said they wouldn't comply with the subpoena. Instead, what they said was, we have complied with the subpoena. There are no more documents here. And that's what that lawyer um, on behalf of Trump signed. Well, at the point that you, as the Department of Justice, know that there are classified documents there, and they're telling you there aren't classified documents there, continuing down that subpoena route is pretty pointless because either they're telling the truth and they really don't know, in which case they can't give you something that they don't know is there, or they're lying to you in which case they're not going to give you the thing that is there and you're going to go round and round for a long time in court being like, no, no, we really know it's there. And then being like, no, we're saying we've signed under penalty of perjury. It's not there. And the problem with that is you run up against this deadline of it's two weeks before the midterm elections or it's one week after Donald Trump announces for president. They don't know if or when he's going to announce. It could happen next week as far as I'm concerned. And if you're the department, going round and round in court over whether there are or aren't documents that you know there are becomes really stupid. Um, you know, And we but, know they're there because of this source, undisclosed right? source. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's where, like, the redacted affidavit, like, yeah, I wish we could all go sit there and read the some of the redacted parts. But they believed at least that they knew they were there. It turns out they were right. But, like, forget even that they were right. They really believed those documents were there and the Trump people are telling them they're not there. So... Regardless, the subpoena route is pretty pointless. Um, What else do we know? You know, the latest thing to happen involves this filter team at the Department of Justice and Trump asking for a special master to review all the documents. You know, I am watching that not with bated breath, but I am curious because they went to a different judge than uh, the judge who signed the search warrant, for instance, and said that, Uh, the Trump folks said, that they wanted a special master to review the documents to look for um, anything that was outside the scope of the search warrant, anything that could be covered by attorney-client privilege, and anything that could be covered by executive privilege. 
some of that was kind of weird to me. We'll maybe get back to that in a second. But the judge has seemed like she's actually kind of interested in the special master idea. The Department of Justice actually just came back a few hours ago and said, well, here's the thing, though. Our filter team is done. So any role that the special master would have has actually already been completed. Now, maybe you could still appoint a special master to do the same thing as the filter team because you don't trust the filter team. The filter team, by the way, whenever the, not whenever, but in a case like this or- Filter team is also called a taint team, right? Or something like that. No, I'm serious. It it is. It is. But that's just gigglier. Yes. No need for potty mouth. Um, (laughs) So if I'm dealing with a child, an adolescent, I say filter team. I see. I see. I understand. Yeah. Because we don't want to get into a whole thing about tainted justice. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, So when they pick up all these documents, instead of having the FBI agents who would- be part of the ongoing criminal investigation, review the documents. First, you have this other set of agents who do not work on the team at all go through just to look for documents that should not be reviewed. They shouldn't be in possession of the FBI. Then the the investigatory team never sees those documents that they're not supposed to see. The special master would basically be doing the same thing. Uh, So I'll... I'll be surprised if a special master gets appointed at this point because, A, documents outside the scope of the search warrant are going to be pretty far and few between, if for no other reason that the search warrant is really broad. Two, um, attorney-client privilege, that's what this filter team does. That's like bread and butter stuff for an FBI filter team at the Department of Justice. That's, I mean... Anytime they've collected documents from any major corporation, they've got to filter them to look for exactly that. They might need to look for trade secret stuff. I mean, these people like kind of know what they're doing on that front. And then you have the executive privilege argument, which is bonkers town to me because anything that would be covered by executive privilege would therefore be a government document that would therefore not belong in Mar-a-Lago, it belonged to the National, well, actually it belonged to us, being held by the National Archives. So the idea that you would argue that they can't get those documents that don't belong to you in the first place, like you can't get those stolen goods, please give them back because they weren't the stolen goods you were supposed to take, that's an argument. Hmm. I had this really fascinating question. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. That's not it, but I have another one. Um, yeah. um I keep reading about, I, you know, I'm, I'm on semi-vacation here. I'm trying to have a life. But I keep reading references to, and I haven't explored in detail, the disconnect between what Trump's lawyers are actually asking for in court versus what the broader Trump team is saying in public. Is there a there there? Is there something I should know that I don't know? There's like this, I keep saying that they're, like they haven't, they haven't requested. First of all, they they never released the search warrant. They could have done that, you know, when they wanted to, uh, if if they wanted to. But um, and I, anyway, maybe I got this wrong. We'll just cut out me asking this question. But it seems like there are people on the twitters who are making a big deal about this, and I just haven't looked into it. I mean, the main thing I've seen was that their initial filing for that special master was a hot mess, written in crayon, and the judge had to come back and ask them, like in third grade style, could you please tell me the why, what, when, and wherefore of your request and like had to ask the really basic questions that lawyers should have put in the filing in the first place. But my impression is they actually came back and for the most part answered those. I mean, one of her questions was, why is this appropriate to be seen by me, a different judge, 
than the judge who actually signed the search warrant. Like really basic stuff. Like, why are you here? What is your name? What do you do? What would you say you do here, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So I've seen some of that. Um, beyond that, I don't really know. Okay, fair enough. I will, I will, I will investigate and return to okay. this maybe on the dispatch pod. I mean, far be it from anyone involved with the Trump organization to say something publicly that they're not backing up in their legal filings. I mean, all of November and December of 2020 was one giant confusion to David French and I on advisory opinions as we would see public press conferences or statements made on TV that then the filing they made in court didn't say at all. So that never happens. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you're not necessarily the right, the ideal person to ask this because you're not making this argument, but just help me understand the partisan brain that is going on here in this, in so far as every time I turn on Fox, every time I see a clip on Fox, not every time, almost every time, because, you know, they're also doing stuff about, you know, Tucker's got this new special, but cattle mutilations, which is really important. But um, I keep people hearing say, well, Hillary Clinton wasn't prosecuted. Um, sometimes you'll hear Hillary Clinton wasn't investigated, which I know from your niche podcast is not, in fact, true. Um, but <laughs> Or a Google search, whichever. Yes, yeah, or whatever, yeah. Or our basic... Uh, <laughs> Uh, current events fluency. Yeah. Um, but uh, what, 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 what bothers me, and this has been sort of a hallmark of the fights for the last seven years, is the people who are saying what Hillary Clinton did with her emails was really bad, right? I agree. What Hillary Clinton did with her emails was really bad. Whether she should have gone to jail, whatever. We don't have to have that conversation. It was, at, the, at minimum, not best practices, and she deserved to be dinged for it. And the way she responded to it was bad. And lots of small fry people go to jail for lesser offenses. And in a republic, that should be something that arouses bipartisan ire. The, the Republicans are furious about how the Hillary Clinton thing was handled. And they point to it constantly. They're saying, well, Hillary Clinton got away with this. Why are you making a big deal about Donald Trump? What I don't understand is a matter of pure logic diagramming, how you can say this is no better or no worse than what Hillary Clinton did, but Hillary Clinton should have been locked up for what she did. And since she wasn't, Donald Trump should not be criticized at all for it. O.J. Simpson got off on a murder rap. That If you go into court after murdering your ex-wife or your ex-husband and say, but wait a second. O.J. Simpson got off. Why should I go to jail for murdering my spouse? It is, I just don't get how people think that this is such a killer argument. So I will tell you, actually, this was something pretty hard for me to grasp. Even like in high school, I remember having conversations with my dad. I used a speeding example more than murdering people. Mm -hmm. That like all the cars are going the same speed and the police officer only pulls you over. How is that fair? Everyone else was speeding. You're the only one who gets a ticket. Uh, I think it does feel unfair, but that gets to the difference between law and justice, actually, <laughs> which is maybe a different conversation. So I think the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump stuff is more complicated, more nuanced than you're giving it some credit for. Because I think there's reasons that what Hillary Clinton did was worse than what Donald Trump's accused of doing. Okay. And I think there's arguments that what Hillary Clinton did is less bad than what Donald Trump is accused of doing. And I'm not sure which argument actually wins the day in my own mind, in part because at the point that you're 
you know, speeding. Yeah, just for the record, I'm not the one equating them, right? I'm like listening to people <laughs> equate them to like let, let Trump off. And so I'm trying to engage with their argument, not necessarily my own. Fine. But, you know, like, uh, okay, that person was going 20 miles over the speed limit, but they were driving by themselves. The other person was going seven miles over the speed limit, but they had a baby in the back of the car. You know, like which one is worse? I could make arguments for both. Um, and so let me try to give examples. So on the one hand, Donald Trump is president and Hillary Clinton was not. I actually think that even cuts both ways. He had a higher responsibility. Also though, he had more authority to declassify and to have the full picture of what did and did not endanger America's national security. And we elected him to know that. And whether you like it or not, that is, you know, don't elect bad people to president or whatever, if that's what you think. But he was elected. She wasn't. Uh, and so he should get to make that call in a way that she shouldn't be able to. Um, okay. Her server was more vulnerable to foreign invasion through hacking. As we know, the Russians, um, of course, got into the Democratic National Committee's servers without much effort, it appears. Um please see Department of Justice indictment number, just kidding, I don't know the number, but 12 <laughs> GRU Russian intelligence officers who were indicted in uh, uh, 2018. I'm going to say t summer of 2018 by my memory. Um, so that, you could argue, was just a worse risk, a riskier mm -hmm. thing to have done. And also, you, you didn't mention her motivation, which to me bothers me most, I think because her motivation was to protect herself politically from her political opposition. She knew that if her, she was conducting all of her emails on a government server, someone in the FOIA office years from now when she was gone would get to decide what to turn over and it would be used as fodder by her enemies. So if it was on a private server, she could decide um, or just not ever turn over any of it for FOIA purposes. It was to protect her and right. her future political ambitions. And I find that pretty gross when she weighed that against the possibility that her server could get hacked and any and everything she was doing as secretary of state could be seen by foreign governments. She was like, yeah, but the Republicans might see my emails otherwise. So, you know, motivation should probably matter a little. At the same time, what Donald Trump did was so sloppy and so intentional. I think one of them, the defenses on Hillary Clinton is, yeah, but she set up a private server. She did have security people, you know, trying to make it as secure as possible. Um, it, whereas what Donald Trump did was stuff a bunch of papers into boxes that he knew he did not have the authority to remove from the White House. He knew they were classified and he took them to Mar-a-Lago because he wanted them for his presidential library because he thought that note from Kim Jong-un or whatever was very, very cool. Then there's the obstruction side of the Donald Trump part. Oh, but there's also the obstruction side of the Hillary Clinton part. On the one hand, Donald Trump kept saying the documents were his and he wasn't going to turn them over until he finally said there were no documents. Hillary Clinton deletes a bunch of emails, tens of thousands of emails off of her server before turning the server over um, to the Department of Justice, also at the end of a subpoena, by the way. Those two to me actually look pretty similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump did turn over a bunch of boxes to the FBI and then said there's no more. Hillary Clinton did turn over her server after she deleted tens of thousands of emails. Like, whoop, those look about the same. So you see my point, right? The more you run through this, like, the differences can be seen in whatever light you want. That's why I find the conversation about which one's worse. And if she wasn't prosecuted, he can't be prosecuted. I'm like, uh, yes, no, maybe. I don't know. The point is, both of them were investigated for the same or similar 
things that they did. She wasn't indicted under a standard that Jim Comey created. He should be held to that same standard. And so far, he hasn't been indicted. So everyone, take a deep breath. I I think that's very fair and useful. The only thing I would also add, though, is the hypocrisy standard, which is that Donald Trump ran lock her up with mobs chanting lock her up passed some new i can't remember if it was law or executive order no it's a law yeah saying this must never happen again (laughs) we have to take this stuff really really seriously and then he does this in fairness jonah as i read that law and i I, most other people it only applies to officers of the united states which the president is not so he did pass a law that applied only to hillary clinton and not to himself okay fair enough fair enough (laughs) Uh, I'm sure that was foremost in his mind. <laughs> All right, so let's let's change gears. Um, when I uh, um, when I had the booking coup of getting you to agree to come on, um, I was like, "What should Y'all I talk to Sarah?" You asked me like two hours ago. <laughs> I was like, "What should I talk to Sarah about?" And uh, my wife and I have been discussing this op-ed that was in the New York Times. Um, and so you you can take off the law hat now completely, right? Put on the mom hat. Mom hat. Also sort of nerd, because you like some of the same sort of evolutionary stuff that I like. Feminist evolutionary biology hat. Yes. So (laughs) there was a piece uh, on August 26th, we'll put in the show notes, by someone named uh, Chelsea Conaboy, which sounds like something grifters do to young children, Conaboy. Um, and she has a new book coming out called Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood, which sounds interesting enough. Um, but the headline of the piece and the claims intermittently within the piece, which is an excerpt from the book, the headline is maternal instinct is a myth that men create it. And uh, just to give you a sense of why, I think part of the problem is that it's a badly either written or edited piece. She basically has this argument where she says that that feminists have been trying to kill this idea uh, of the of the of the maternal instinct since it first hatched, and then she goes on to say, and I can't find this quote. I'll find it when you're talking. She goes on to say, almost like in the next paragraph, this idea begins with the story of the Christian version of this idea begins with the story of Eve in the Garden of Eden. And with the Virgin Mary, and I was like, how many modern feminists were trying to quash that narrative, uh, you know, around the time of the Garden of Eden um, or of early Christianity? But anyway, what did you think of this piece? Okay, so she's making a few arguments, some of which I agree with, and some of which I don't even think she agrees with. Meaning, I think if I read the book, uh, it's probably more nuanced than in this op-ed. Okay, so here are some arguments that I agree with. It is certainly the case that the role of women in the family and in society shifted pretty dramatically around the Industrial Revolution. And at that same time, you have Darwin, you have a lot of eugenicists coming up with this whole notion of, I mean, there's like phrenology on one end of the spectrum, but there's also what what is part of phrenology and eugenicism is what is normal. And so we have this creation of what is a normal woman. And because it's in this like industrial revolution, slightly post-industrial revolution time period, what is created as normal women isn't actually very correct at all. (laughs) 
So, you know, you have any time a woman complains about anything that, um, uh, you know, she's, this is what women do, right? They're frantic, emotional, psychotic little beings who are going to bleed all over your important documents. That's why they can't have jobs. And again, if you go back even 200 years before that, that's just not going to be the case. Uh, you know, one of the most famous women uh, heads of state is in what, like roughly eight something AD in Britain, Ethelfled in Mercia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, she was a political and military leader of her people. Um, so the idea that we always thought women should just stay at home and have children isn't quite right. At the same time, she's an exception. Most military and political rulers were certainly men. So I am sympathetic to this idea that there were a whole bunch of men in the 1800s and early 1900s creating this normal womanhood conception that has led to a lot of problems mm -hmm. in the hundred years after that, which there's actually this great book uh, called Invisible Data. And it's about data bias affecting women in like every single thing that we do. And the fact that like up until very recently, they weren't testing seatbelts with female dummies. Mm -hmm. They only tested them with male dummies. And frankly, if you're pregnant and using a seatbelt, you're probably in pretty bad shape. And they don't talk about that. And even today, uh, women are far more likely to be, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but um, either killed or seriously injured in a car accident than men. Why? Because we created cars to be safe for men and not women. And we're just built physically very differently. And I blame that on this, again, post-industrial revolution idea of um, normal womanhood, which basically excluded us from the conversation so that everything was built around actually normal men. Okay. But here's the part. Uh, so I agree with her on all of that. Here's the part where I disagree, or maybe just what she doesn't recognize, which is that there is a bell curve. Now, on the one hand, those dudes weren't recognizing the bell curve. Um, and they certainly were wrong about where the point of, like the middle point of the bell was, like mm -hmm. way off. But there is a bell curve. Some women, most women are going to fall in that middle part of the bell curve. And then there's always going to be people on the, on the tips. Um, and if you don't acknowledge that middle part of the bell curve, I just don't see how I'm supposed to take you seriously in sort of a sciencey way. <laughs> and that's why I say, I think it's a little unfair to base this on an op-ed instead of, you know, just, uh, reading her, her book, but she acknowledges, for instance, that, um, you know, we know that there are actual neuro changes that happen in a gestational parent's brain and body that do not happen and a non-gestational parent's brain or body. And by the way, before everyone jumps on me for using that term, <laughs> here we're talking about adopted parents, parent, mothers who use surrogates. So it's mm -hmm. their baby genetically in every way, but they didn't actually give birth to it. So that's a non-gestational parent. That'd be a great way to test um, what is actually causing some of these neuro changes. Your brain becomes really plastic. Anyway, we know that for most women, you know, who fall in that middle part of the bell curve, they're going to just experience much bigger changes than their male partner, than two male partners, than adoptive parents, stuff like that. But not every woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would, <laughs> for, for other moms out there, I was sort of the last of my friend group to have a baby, including of my little Harvard Law clique. And I, I use my Harvard Law clique of women because these are already, you're already at the very end of the bell curve in a lot of other respects when you're talking about women who attend Harvard Law School and frankly are friends with me. Um, and all of them described this oxytocin rush that they got as soon as that baby popped out. 
And I thought, wow. And some of these women are not cuddly, feely women. In fact, I would say in my friend group there, I was in the middle of the bell curve on touchy feeliness, maybe even towards the higher side. And nope, I got no oxytocin rush at all (laughs) and instead fell into the 10% or so of women who experience postpartum anxiety afterwards, which is all kind of related to a bunch of stuff being out of whack. Um, Now, is that because it was the peak of COVID and, uh, you know, protests going around around the country, including just, you know, I could hear some of it from where I was and I couldn't leave my house and I couldn't leave the house with the baby and nobody ever saw me pregnant. And it was all just very weird. And also the anesthesia didn't take during my C-section. Like, Mm -hmm. yep, all of that could have screwed with my oxytocin levels. (laughs) Um, But when you sent me the headline, Jonah, I was curious about your own experience because you're a pretty modern man in a lot of respects. And I had this notion that if I kept working, as you know, I'd like did a podcast on Monday. I gave birth on a Friday mm-hmm. that that would sort of force my husband to take over some of those parental responsibilities without me hovering there. Even if I didn't want to be like, I was just told that like, you won't help yourself. Like you'll be like, you're not doing it right. And that's not how you change the diaper and you need to burp. I'm like, what if I'm just not there because I am doing a podcast. So for several hours a day from the second we got home from the hospital, I wasn't there. And so you'd think that would kind of balance out some of, again, that headline calls maternal instincts. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) On the flip side, though, Scott in the last week has literally saved our son from catastrophic injury. Like, you know, those clips they have of dads where like the kid all of a sudden is flying off the swing and the dad catches the kid with one hand. Like Scott has done that three times where I'm not even moving toward Nate yet. And Scott has already caught him. Um, So I I also think there's paternal instincts, but I do think those are different in the middle of the bell curve for most men and most women. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I, I think it was a very, very, very irresponsible and trollish headline. Yeah. And, um, and, and it's one in parts of the piece she doesn't want to let go of. And then in other parts, has to sort of acknowledge the simple reality that it, it's a blanket statement that the maternal instinct is a myth to me is very anti-science. Um, now, and anti-woman, by the way, I find it very anti-feminist. I, I, I agree entirely. And, and I think part it's, of being feminist is acknowledging that we are different and that doesn't mean inferior, but absolutely. by saying we're not different and that's why we're not inferior. Are we cursing on this podcast? Is this a cursing podcast? Anyway, curse uh, word, curse word. um um, no like um you know my mom was a sort of a bit of a anti-feminist uh hothead phyllis schlafly type um and she used to like debate against the era calling equality a step down for women and um uh but like the the early feminists mother their status as mothers was a big part of their argument Right. It, they claimed that it gave them special insights, the special whatever. And they probably exaggerated it as much as, you know, uh, misogynist men exaggerated it, but just in a, you know, in a sort of positive direction instead of a negative direction. Um, but just, you know, it's a baseline setting for a second. I agree with you that there are, there are parental instincts, right? There are fathers who have fatherly instincts and, one of the tragedies, um, which is just 
just just to give an, sort of a negative, dark example of this, is that stepfathers are like orders of magnitude more likely to abuse their stepchildren than their biological children. This is, this is found in cross-cultural studies. It is just a thing, right? Um, there's a, you know, like when my daughter, who's a beautiful young lady now, but when she was, whose baby sat for you, um, uh, when she was born, she looked like my dad had been reborn as an infant. I mean, she looked like a little Sid Goldberg. She looked like she should be reading the New York Times and eating a bagel. And um, I was told by people that there's an evolutionary component to that because fathers want to be reassured that it's their kid. It's especially, weirdly, especially prominent in a firstborn child because once you've established paternity for that firstborn child, again, think evolutionarily, from that point forward, he's like, all right, as long as that first one's mine, probably the rest are mine too. And it's why the firstborn, more likely than not, will look more like dad and the subsequent children may or may not. But it's it's not as I, I didn't know about the firstborn thing. That's interesting. So, and I agree, but like, you know, invoking postpartum depression, which is a real thing, you know, my wife struggled with all sorts of stuff. Interestingly, her epidural didn't take in her C-section. So that's, that is interesting because you could, uh, yeah, it makes some sense to me, actually. Um, like literally, I haven't told this story in public, but like when they put her, when the doctor put her hands in to pull the, my daughter out, my wife kicked over the surgical table because she felt the whole thing. And, um, and like my one, the one promise she extracted from me going into all of this was she didn't want to be in pain and I was supposed to be your advocate. And then I'm like, Oh crap, this is not how it was supposed to go. Anyway. Um, they like took a break when they realized I could feel stuff. They stopped to decide whether they could stop for a minute and redo the the epidural and they were they had cut too far in and so then they were just like all right hold on and then it was 20 more minutes if you think that c-sections are fast let me tell you something i thought they just sliced pulled nope i remember every second and minute it was a large surgical clock on the wall and i i it ticked by um i will spare literally laying my wife's innards bare um, both never mind figuratively, uh, and we can continue that part of the conversation off off air. But um, like, so just as a matter of science, to broadly proclaim the maternal instinct is a myth. Um, someone was pointing this out. I think they were writing for Quillette. I saw, saw, saw something the other day about this. Ninety five. There was always oh, this woman at Harvard um, uh, who studies hormone stuff, um, and she was saying, "Look, ninety five percent of mammalian species." Um, primary parental care for, for offspring is done by females, right? That is not saying, and therefore women should stay home and be pregnant and barefoot or anything. I'm not making that point. I'm just like, it's just a matter of science. Never mind common sense. If you've, we've all known, starting with our own mothers, but like lots of mothers. And um, like the idea that somehow maternal instincts which I think are among the most glorious and wonderful things about our species, by the way, you know, and there's something that we should celebrate. Um, the idea that maternal instincts are simply a concoction of the patriarchy is batty, right? You know, now- what- Can I read you a section of the op-ed that like really got under my skin? Sure. So uh, she's quoting from Darwin here. 
What a strong feeling of inward satisfaction must impel a bird so full of activity to brood day after day over her eggs, Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex in 1871. Observant as he was, Darwin apparently ignored the hunger of the mother bird and the angst of having mouths to feed and predators to fend off. He didn't notice her wasting where her wing meets body from her own unending stillness. Well, that's some anthropomorphization. <laughs> like what? Why do you think she's feeling angst? Why do you think she's feeling hunger? We don't know that. And in terms of body loss, um, yeah, lots of animals actually, I mean, think about just bears when they're hibernating, you know, lose huge amounts of their body weight every year. And like, if your point is that Darwin was anthropomorphizing by saying what a strong feeling of inward satisfaction must impel a bird, I I take his to be more figurative, meaning Mm -hmm. whatever chemicals in that brain are impelling her to sit on that brood, he's calling satisfaction, fine. But what she's describing makes less sense. She's saying that the bird is feeling angst about predators and hunger of her own. But then that's not impelling her to sit there. So you're actually arguing against what we see happening. Again, it was just like this weird anti-science part where we have no evidence that birds are fighting against some instinct to want to leave the baby birds. If anything, we see the opposite. They will just sit there. Well, and also, that's that's evidence in our column because... Like, let's say right. she's right. She's super you know, hungry and she still sits there. And she's like, screw it. I got to stay here because this is my baby. Right? right. I mean, it's like if she's feeling all those things, it's like, you know, it, it, it's like deer are, re- deer are really lucky that basically wolves are no longer a thing um, because the way they protect their young is just really kind of lame. Uh, you know, baby deer have no scent, zero scent. And the, re- and the reason for that is like the deer strategy is go find some really tall grass and hide the baby and then lure the wolves away by running away from your baby and like according to like her logic in that the deer would never come back to find her baby but they do because they're their baby and like anyway i just footnote since it wasn't in my bio but my mother was a federally and state licensed wildlife rehabber and one of her her specialties were raptors but we also took in deer and so often we would get called out to deer who were being eaten alive by fire ants because the baby deer would be sitting there waiting and presumably the mother had been hit by a car or something at that point and they mm-hmm. will not leave that spot. They will actually get eaten alive by fire ants. They are so compelled to stay and wait for mom. Wow. If you are forbidden, you will be fired from the dispatch to rewrite Bambi. <laughs> that's pretty in, great. <laughs> that's a dark Bambi. That's a, that's a dark Bambi. <laughs> um, yeah, we Maybe had this one the... sweet deer who was totally scarred from all the, the fire. Oh, ants. that's terrible. But um, he lived a very happy life, so. Sidebar, uh, since you are a defender of raptors, and I've heard your stories about raptors, uh, I'm not saying you should see the movie Fall, but I went with it, went to it with my daughter, and it is, um, it is decidedly anti-raptor. <laughs> you know that whole staircase thing? about the the murder where they've now made the documentary staircase and now they've made the Colin Firth miniseries staircase decidedly anti-owl. And I just want to tell you, they're like, barred owls could be notoriously like attack humans. And I'm like, no, what? (laughs) (laughs) No, I have pictures of me and Mr. Owl living quite a happy life together in the wild, by the way, not in captivity. Um, That's ridiculous. But yeah, no, like basically vultures, raptors, they're just... The villains 
oh, that's what I want to do is raise injured and orphaned vultures and crows. It seems to me sort of taking that piece, but also more broadly, you know, like every, like I try not to get baited into the transgender stuff too much because, you know, on an interpersonal level, I have a lot of sympathy and I think people should be treated with respect and called what they want to be called and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, but, same thing, mostly on the bell curve in terms of what we actually know on science, that, that sexuality is on a bell curve. Gender is to some extent on a bell curve. It's why set aside the transgender debate, but we all grew up with tomboys or boys that were more sensitive. And we all noted that. So we all knew that, you know, gender characteristics were on that bell curve. We were just never willing to recognize the very end of the bell curve. But that doesn't mean women like the center of the bell curve doesn't exist. Right. Right. Um, And like, you know, I think it's Charlie Cook once pointed out the whole idea of intersex takes it as a given that there are two sexes and there's one in the middle. You know, it's like the the definition of things is defined by the norm kind of thing. And But it seems to me that the rhetoric about belief in science, trust in science, in this house we believe in science, and yada, 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 I would be, maybe it's changed, but as of three years ago, I would be stunned if there was a medical textbook in the United States of America that said sex is a myth and that um that that your biological sex is purely an act of will and social construction and um it seems to me that there's this weird thing in i don't want to sound like sora bamari or anything but there's a thing in modern liberalism of the sort of um in the Rawlsian tradition, which basically says science is real, but except when it comes to human identity, which is ruled by blank slateism and will and, and norms of social justice and whatnot. And I don't think it's good for the left to basically nightstick anybody who says, you know, medical definitions are real. Biological definitions are real. And that doesn't, you know, like, and, and, and culturally the problem I have is you're right. There've always been tomboys. My my wife was a bit of a tomboy when she was young. She grew up in Alaska. She had a lot of older brothers. I Um, did not wear clothes until an age I should not disclose. Clothes or female clothes? Okay. Any clothes. All right. That's uh, (laughs) your college interview must've been fascinating. Anyway. Um, I just didn't think, I didn't see the point. I was in nature with the animals. <laughs> but so I, look, I'll put it this way. I think it's a real problem culturally. And I think we will look back on it one day with great regret when we say, when, when we now take, the way we treat tomboy girls is to say, oh, you're actually not a girl, right? Or you're on the spectrum of whatever, rather than just saying it's a phase. Or it's not, you're actually a tomboy, but you're still a woman. Like, and so my concern is that when you start to treat everyone as purely their individual self, you actually erase a lot of what we need from science in terms of social justice and other things, which is how you get cars made exclusively for men, Mm -hmm. because we can't make it for all 365 million individuals in the country. And so you pick one representative to make the car safe for. Well, if we simply say that, 
you know, we're all humans and there is no such thing as sex or gender, then we're making the cars for men again. So at first we were making the cars for men because we were sexist. And now we're going to make the cars for men because we're not sexist. And like both of those end up with dead women. So I have a friend who's whose kids go to a posh school and they have something like sexual awareness week. And this is a grade school. And they ask boys, nine, 10 year old boys, you know, things like, do you like girls? Now, I don't know if you know this, but the handbook for 10 year old boys when asked, do you like girls is either, you know, they're gross or I don't know. Right. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, like, I don't Casanovas want to talk about this. are the ones who say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you say, I don't know, the teacher would say, oh, well, that means you're what we call questioning. And that kind of social indoctrination, I think, is ripe for really, really ugly backlashes that will not help the people that supposedly everyone is trying to help. And again, not to harp on the women thing, but like something that now I think we are much better along at knowing is the symptoms for um, heart attacks and strokes in women are so different. And yet we've taught everyone that the symptoms for heart attacks are what men experience, you know, pain in your left arm, shortness of breath. And that's not what women experience. And again, if we simply say that like, well, I mean, there's really, there's, there's men and then there's lactating persons or something. We're not going to fix the problems that we have that were created by the way, by those dudes who were eugenicists and phrenologists and all of that and did try to erase the experiences of women, not because they didn't think they were different, but because they were so different. We didn't need to worry about them. They shouldn't be out of the house. They shouldn't be in cars to begin with. They certainly shouldn't be having jobs. Um, they're little, the stress just breaks their uteruses in half. It's very difficult on them. Um, and we're feeding right into that same thing again. And you know, if you were, if you would have been pissed a hundred years ago, you should be pissed now as a feminist. There's a great radio lab on this from a few years ago. Yes, about, the Gonad series. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't oh, know maybe no. maybe it was. But on, <laughs> uh, I love the radio lab Gonad series. On autoimmune diseases? Yes, yeah. And the evolution, the evolutionary science about women and autoimmune diseases is fascinating because evolutionarily, you know, our species, probably long before we became anything recognizable as homo sapiens, had to deal with this problem of an intruder inside the female body, namely a fetus and the placenta and different DNA, different everything. Like it would be the thing you want to kill. And so your body or female body has to turn off all sorts of immune responses so that it doesn't just digest the, the, the fetus. And, and so women have at the same time a much more robust immune system but also just a very different one. And so an enormous number of the autoimmune diseases, including, I think, like rheumatoid arthritis and all these things, women suffer from wildly off the scales more than men do. Yeah, usually nine to one ratios for things like lupus and things like that. Yeah. And by the way, they can often, like, at least recede when you're pregnant. When you're pregnant, yeah. Yeah, it's like um, they interviewed all these women who had all these terrible conditions, and then they get pregnant, and they're like, they felt great for the first time. Anyway, I just, life's complicated, I think is the, <laughs> the, the, the gist of it. And I, I agree with you, like, the bell curve point is, is hugely important, but defining what science says or isn't say, saying as a myth based upon the outliers on the bell curve isn't science. It's, it's a 
ideological agenda masquerading as, as such. And what you want it to be, right? I mean, that's the real problem with a piece like this, is that the author clearly wants it to be the case that there is no difference between men and women as parents. And so therefore, all the onus that's being put on women in our society. I mean, you look at the childcare numbers of how many hours a week people spend. Dads have wildly increased from 70 years ago, but it still is nothing in comparison to what moms are doing. And that doesn't even take into account the mental load that women bear. I mean, in my house, Scott actually does a lot of childcare, but it's my responsibility to know which babysitter is coming, what time she's coming. And that like, it's like this running program in the back of my head. Do we have diapers? Does he have clean clothes for school tomorrow? All this stuff that is not direct childcare with uh, the brisket himself. Um, yeah, so... What would feel really good is to say all of that is because Scott and our society are sexist and have put that on me instead of him, not because innately there is a difference between the female experience and the male experience. And so if you want to reach that conclusion, you're grasping at all these things like the angsty sparrow um, to get there. And so I'm always very hesitant when something in science bears out what our current culture wants it to be. Yeah. Yeah. It could be I mean, true, confirmation, but yeah, yeah right. but you should be more skeptical of, of those studies. I mean, we've seen study after study that can't be replicable. Like, yeah, if it's telling you exactly what this cultural moment wants it to be, like, eh, I question whether in 20 years we're going to be like, well, not so much. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like the history of the nutrition guidelines or... <laughs> the marshmallow test, you know, yeah. with kids and, um, you know, they'll be more successful if they can... Uh, wait and put off satisfaction now in order to have the marshmallow, two marshmallows later. Well, in the, what was it? I forget when that test actually originally was, but that fit the cultural moment then. And now we're like, oh no, the marshmallow test, not replicable. There's no difference between the kids who at four years old can wait five minutes to get two marshmallows. Well, that fits this cultural moment. <laughs> it's like, actually, I'm just going to throw all this out. Like, when you're dealing with four-year-olds in an experimental situation and marshmallows. Maybe that's just not how society works in terms of whether you're going to be an astrophysicist or not. Do you ever read Paul Bloom's book, Just Babies? No. You should definitely read Paul Bloom's book, Just Babies. It's fantastic. It's, um, I've plugged it before. He's been on The Remnant. Um, he's now in some Canadian backwater. He listens to this podcast, so I'm just giving him a hard time. But he used to be the head of the psychology department at Yale, and um, he's written some great books. And the Just Babies book, it's, it's, it's called Just Babies on the Origins of Good and Evil. And I mean, it's, it's got Sarah Esger written all over it. And basically what it does is, <laughs> is it, it summarizes what we know about the factory preset programming of human beings. And so it just summarizes... All of the experiments on babies and toddlers, you know, I think the cutoff is like three and a half. You know, as I often say, you know, like human beings, you know, my go-to line from my book was this line from Hannah Arendt, which is that every generation Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children. So babies come into the world with all sorts of factory preset programming, but it needs updates. And that's what parents do, right? Is they turn barbarians into hum human beings and citizens. But what's sort of fascinating is that um, all sorts of moral taste buds exist in babies. And um, also, the, the thing I find most fascinating, the biggest takeaway I got from the book, or the one I, I enjoy the most, is that babies are born with accents. So your baby cried, the brisket cried originally in an American-accented cry, 
Russian babies will have a Russian accent. I mean, you have to use a computer to discern it, but it's a real thing. And that babies, and this is something I wish the left took to heart. Babies are more scared of people who sound different than look different. Like a uh, black person does not scare a baby, particularly early on, because they don't really see it in that kind of way. But if they speak in another language or if they have a weird accent, it will freak them out because they're much more wired in the beginning for hearing than visually. And um, a lot, uh, and I, what I take from this in part is that a lot of our bigotries in society actually have to do more with the way people talk than with the color of their skin or anything like that. And it's like, you know, it's like when you hear, it's amazing how a lot of your assumptions about bad assumptions, right. But, um, about African-Americans, uh, for a lot of white people, if they hear a British black person talk, all of a sudden it's just like, Oh my God. Right. And like, that should tell you something about the, the bad assumptions you are bringing into these things. Um, but anyway, the book is fascinating about like, Babies come with born with a sense of of, of justice and, and punishment and um, and the notions of fairness and um, and those are you know that is of a piece with the maternal instinct. We come in with some wiring, and some people are more tightly wired than others for certain things. But right. like can't deny the wiring. Yeah, that's where I think my kid has some weird tendencies. But one of them I think about often is that he really really likes semi-sweet chocolate chips and he knows where they are in the pantry and he makes me go get the stepladder to go to the pantry to go up turn on the light and then go over and get the chocolate chips at which point he asks for two chocolate chips and he reaches in and he gets two Mm -hmm. and then would like to wait until we leave for school to eat them in the car there is no benefit (laughs) to waiting i'm not he's not getting additional chocolate chips nothing but he would like to savor his chocolate chips about five minutes later in the car that is some serial killer stuff right there. That's weird. It's interesting. It's just, well, one time when uh, Lucy was about the brisket's age, she drew all over the wall in my wife's office. And Lucy's an only child. <laughs> and we asked her who did this. And she's like, a bad girl came into the house and did this. And <laughs> to this day, we're always like, who dented the car? Was it the bad girl? <laughs> yeah, these kids, I, I keep thinking that the nurture part has less and less effect than the nature part. Like they just come out so wired and you're right. Like there's going to be bell curve of the wiring and then some outlier parts of your wiring. Um, but I don't know that the, that the parenting is making that much of a difference one way or the other. I think you can, you can hurt your child obviously. And that will even there though, we've seen some resilience wiring. Some kids are more resilient to trauma than other kids. And that's part of the wiring. Now, of course the trauma being introduced isn't, yeah, I know. James Q. Wilson in his book, The Moral Sense, which was another one of these surveys of what we know about innate moral sense, was uh, he said his analogy was, which will be lost on our younger listeners, all three of them, um, it was like a photo negative. That there's an image on the negative and you can develop it yes. really well. Yes. Or not, but the image is the image. And I think Mona Sharon once said to me that I that she's something like uh, maybe I'm butchering this, but she said I don't think parents can do a lot to change their kids' personalities, but they can do a lot about their kids' character. And I think I like it's an interesting distinction. Actually, I, I think it's a useful distinction. Like you, you know, 
character goes more to like what's wrong and right. You know, what are the things that you're supposed to do as a decent person? And your personality can be all over the place as long as you obey the norms. And Jonah, you will be so pleased to know that the character that I am inculcating in this household today, (laughs) this is not a joke. So you know how I feel about bugs Mm -hmm. and you know how I feel about spiders in particular, although this Mm -hmm. is not going to be a spider story in particular. Um, So I try to just stun the flies in our house and then I bring all the flies outside. Now, Mm -hmm. maybe some of them don't live. I acknowledge Mm -hmm. that, but I at least like hope you know, I give them the chance. Um, and today, Nate found a dead fly and was like, take fly outside. And I was like, yes, <laughs> let's take him outside and, and let him let him get home if he can. And so he, he had followed my example of that when you see any bug in the house, that the bug, you know, should get the chance to live outside. You don't just kill the bug or squish the bug. Given your arachnophilia, mm-hmm. why don't you take the dead bug and throw it into the spider web and feed the spider. Ooh, so Jonah, funny thing about how I spent my vacation <laughs> this past <laughs> week. <laughs> so there were a lot of um, orb weavers uh-huh. where I was. And so every night they would come out around 9, 10 p.m. and they would all build their webs anew. And I'm talking dozens of orb weavers. And so I had a little policy. I would start up the, the fire. And for any of the large bugs, I watched this. If the large bugs come near the fire, they will eventually hurl themselves into the fire. And I thought that was such a waste of good protein. And so if they landed near the fire from that point forward, I would take them and throw them into a spider web. And I had some really grateful orb weavers. I have to tell you, so grateful, in fact, that on my last day, a Carolina wolf spider came right to my chair uh, where I had been feeding the fish bread. And so some ants had gotten the leftover bread and presumably the wolf spider wanted to eat the ants. But I showed Nate, he was not that into the wolf spider, but we saw a slug on the way back and he did pet the slug. Um, I did not know when I suggested that you feed the ants, the, the fly. That I do feed the spider. I was like going to hit the nail on the head here. I mean, it's, it's like, that's uh, a little creepy. Um, um, my but only the be- bugs that were about to commit suicide. Because the bugs deserve some respect too. And this is, I was trying to explain this to husband of the pod, the niche pod, if you mm-hmm, remember. Mm-hmm. He was asking me like to try to explain my inner thinking on this. And like all of the animals we see are the best at doing what they do. They have made it this far along the evolutionary track. And so we somehow presume that we're at the top of this pyramid when in fact that's not true. That spider is the very best at being a spider. And that comes with all sorts of abilities and senses and everything else. And so like, there's just a certain uh, homo sapien humility that we should have. We're the best primates, not primates, we're the best homo sapiens because we've evolved this far along. Um, But so have the orb weavers and the wolf spiders and the slugs and the little caterpillars. Yeah, I I gotta, I guess, we don't have to debate this. We've gone long, (laughs) generous with your time. But I think that's hot garbage. Um, I think there are all sorts of species that... There are some evolutionary dead ends. I yes, mean, look, there... pandas do look like they're on a cul-de-sac right now. Yeah. As my wife likes to say, too cute to live. Yeah. Um, but like horseshoe crabs, it's just that they're Amazing. so freaking ugly. No one wants to eat them and they've just managed to hang around. What do you mean? Um, their blood. We're using their blood all the time. The blue blood of the horseshoe crab, we harvest them, we siphon some blood, we put them back in to have some more blood, then we bring them back and we take more of their blood. We love horseshoe crabs. We just don't eat them. 
who's who's the we? <laughs> that's all of your vaccines, Jonah. Okay, of course yeah. you grab Okay, but that that is not that that's fine. But that is not testimony to how horseshoe crabs are the best at what they do. Um, that the testimony that 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 we have dominion over these prehistoric dinosaur nope. giant bug things. Um, the uh, the armadillo, which I have a weak spot for armadillos. I like they're armadillos. So cute, but they're but for the syphilis. Their their standard defense about an oncoming car is to leap high up into the air and then come back down the spot in a ball. Um, Bully for them, but like, you know, come on. Evolution takes time, Jonah. The car's been around for about 100 years. Give it time. They'll become the best armadillos they can be. Raccoons, crows, think of all the animals that have adapted so quickly to benefit from humans, and that will just continue. You know, we'll be gone and the horseshoe crab will be thriving long after us. So who wins then? I'd say the horseshoe crab. So I am, I'll just be blunt. I am 100% a bigot when it comes to the animal kingdom. You are. I am. I like charismatic megafauna. You should respect these spiders and see them for the fascinating, brilliant creatures that they are. I think spiders should be considered on par with octopodes in the sense that if they were not so solitary and short-lived, they would probably, you know, destroy you. Right. Which is like (laughs) one of the reasons why I I respect them as an enemy. Um, And I, uh, no, look, I mean, like I, I, I would have elephant poaching be crime punishable by death, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I would not mind in some crazy neocon scheme sending, you know, troops to protect elephants. Um, same thing with whales, tigers, all that kind of stuff. As you move down the evolutionary ladder to things that are not sufficiently magical and wonderful, eh. I mean, look, I don't want all the spiders to be killed. Um, I don't think the world would lose much if we killed all the mosquitoes. Uh, So I actually find that to be a really interesting debate, this idea that we could eradicate mosquitoes and we don't quite know what the fallout would be of eradicating such a large-scale species. Um, But these orb weavers, Jonah, every night I would go out and look at their different webs. And it's, you know, each one builds in the same spot, but every night is a different web. And they have these very, very unique little personalities in terms of their webs. Like you've seen this test where they give spiders CBD oil or cocaine or meth or whatever, and they build like crazy webs. I've not, in fact, seen these. Okay, well, they're awesome. Uh Um, but one of my spiders was like super conscientious and the web was always perfect and he was always working so hard or she, I don't know. Um, and like when I would throw the bug up early in the evening, would just run over, wrap the bug really quickly and then continue building that perfect web. Another one of my spiders. Sort of like the brisket saving the chocolate chip. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. It was a brisket spider. And another spider would build the most haphazard web. And when I would throw the bug up, in fact, would not hunt the rest of the night, just ate that bug. <laughs> and then <laughs> was like, cool, we're done here. Um, and the next day would just start over again. I mean, that's these are unique creatures. So at the end of The Fly, when, uh, not the remake, uh, but the original, when the miniature human is stuck in the webs crying, help me, help me, do you save the human do you crush it with a rock like spoiler alert that's how they ended it um uh um i just i I think i think this goes to my point jonah 
what if all of those flies are humans and all of the humans are flies? And like, that's why I let all the flies out of my house as best I can. Yeah. Well, look, my dad, every Thanksgiving, at the end of the meal, when the turkey carcass was very picked over, right? Um, just skin and bones and a cup, maybe one hunk of meat left. My dad would turn to me deadpan and say, Jonah, do you think if we got the best scientists and doctors that there'd be any chance of saving this turkey's life? Um, but at the beginning of the meal, when we started cutting into the turkey, he would always say, if there was a planet of super intelligent turkeys and they were watching this, they would think that this is one of the most barbaric and grotesque things they'd ever seen and they would hold us to account. I do not live daily in fear that there is some race of flies that is going to come here, sort of like in Men in Black, yeah, right, or yeah. in, in uh, Starship Troopers, and say, look what you've done to our kind. Um, there must be a reckoning. I, I, my attitude is if we do encounter the bug race and they're angry at us, bring it. Like, it's, it's go time. And to bring us full circle, this is why I actually don't believe in international law. I don't believe international law can exist. Because war... There's a winner, there's a loser. If it's the giant flies or the turkeys or us, like that's who determines what's barbaric uh, and what's acceptable. And we actually just had a fascinating conversation over at Advisory Opinions about the Nuremberg trials and whether they were just because if there's no international law, then to what were we appealing in the Nuremberg trials? Except we won. I have answers to that. But um, look, I mean, there's a difference between summary executions of your enemies and some sort of process and accounting. Sure. You don't need, don't need to appeal to international law to say one is more humane, more high-minded, superior to the other. But what did the German officers break? They didn't break German law. No, no, that's fair. I mean, um, they broke our sense of morality, but it's our sense of morality, not theirs. Yeah. And I have, the confidence that our sense of morality is better. As do I. Cheers. All right. With that, um, and, 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 and lest anybody uh, suspect that Sarah or I, in the course of experimenting with orb weavers, consume some of the CBD oil ourselves, um, it's just one of those late August kind of conversations. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, literally, I will do this anytime and we'll bring more spider research to bear. All right, so uh, Sarah has left the studio. She was a good egg, and um, uh, and I should definitely have her back on more often. Although, I think uh, as I was telling her after we finished recording, uh, staying true to the the, the conversation, uh, I think there will be a significant bell curve distribution of responses to this podcast, um, and it'll be interesting to see who liked the first half and then hated the second half, and vice versa. Um, but Spare me the emails about how I should have more respect for spiders. That's just going to bounce off of me like a spoon off a forehead. So um, thanks, everybody, for putting up with the weird schedule that I've had. Um, and I can't say I'm totally looking forward to coming back to Washington, but it, it's time. And um, uh, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. It's a podcast.